There's good reason to think that Latinos will be mobilized as a reaction to what they anticipate will be the possibility of a president who would take very draconian actions against them. The Latino vote in 2016. They turned out in big numbers to elect Barack Obama, but will they turn out to vote in this election year? The numbers are there, but is the desire? It is the case, however, that only 52% of Latino citizens above the age of 18 are registered to vote. We talk with Luis Fraga. He's the Arthur Foundation Endowed Professor of Transformative Latino Leadership at the University of Notre Dame. He shares his thoughts about the Latino vote and its potential impact in the 2016 presidential election. I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is Conversations. In 2012, more than 70% of Latinos supported Barack Obama, and they helped to elect him to a second term. I guess the question is, will they turn out uh, in 2016? Well, there are two reasons that will help us understand the likelihood that they'll turn out. One is whether or not they're asked to turn out. It's very important to remember that Barack Obama was not just an attractive candidate, but his organization had as an explicit strategy identifying, mobilizing, and turning out Latino voters, African-American voters, working-class voters generally in strategic areas across the country. The type of targeting and mobilization that his campaign did was quite unique, even for Democrats. So if the Democratic campaigns focus on Latinos, try to turn them out, there's every reason to think that they might turn out in high high numbers. But if they don't, they take a risk. Secondly, it's possible that they would turn out as a reaction to who an opposing candidate might be. By an opposing candidate, I mean a Republican candidate who identifies Latinos as the problem. Well, one might argue that all of the Republican presidential candidates right now have identified Latino immigrants as a very important point of concern, Donald Trump being perhaps the most extreme, but all of them have taken positions. There's good reason to think that Latinos will be mobilized as a reaction to what they anticipate will be the possibility of a president who would take very draconian actions against them. So that's a possibility. Now, it's important to remember as well that about 800,000 Latinos turn 18 every year. And 94% of those Latinos are eligible to vote because they're born in the United States. So there's a constant new pool of young potential Latino voters. Therefore, the issues of reaction and the issues of mobilization become especially important for that particular segment of the population. It is the case, however, that only 52% of Latino citizens above the age of 18 are registered to vote. So a major barrier still for Latinos participating at high rates is overcoming the registration challenge. Um, let's talk about uh, a report that came out from uh, Pew Research. And uh, according to this report, um, even though 27 million Latinos will be eligible to cast a ballot in November, and you know these numbers well, it's an increase of 17% since 2012, uh, the Latino population, according to this report, is becoming 
more distant from the American political process. Um, the director of Hispanic research at Pew, Mark Hugo Lopez, said that we're seeing the number of people who could vote growing at a faster pace than those who do vote. There were more non-voters than voters in the last election, and those non-voter numbers are rising. Yeah, well, the, the increase in non-voters is in part due to the last election being a midterm election, a non-presidential election, when turnout generally goes down rather substantially. So I would think that a better indicator would be what happens with Latino voters in this particular election. But then again, going back to what I said previously, um, the pattern that one sees is driven by the extent to which Latinos are targeted for mobilization and who the candidates are that are running for office. And there's reason to believe that this 2016 election may represent some very different options for Latinos that might increase the likelihood that they will be mobilized. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Donald Trump because uh, obviously he has said things. Um, Latinos became the first target of his right out of the gate uh, before he got to Muslims and anybody else that came along the line that he, he did not like. Um, New York Times recently had an article about the Trump effect possible Trump effect and how he could be a uniter for Latinos and that uh, they focused the article on a, on a Denver uh, community where Latinos were, uh, that had been residents here but had not become U.S. citizens and now were going to become U.S. citizens so they could vote and vote against Donald Trump if he became the Republican nominee. Yeah, that's exactly the scenario I was describing earlier, that, that Latino voters would be mobilized as a reaction to someone like Donald Trump. There's a precedent for this. It's very important to understand. In 1994, Pete Wilson, incumbent Republican governor of California, ran for re-election on largely an anti-Latino immigrant platform. And he supported what at that time was called Proposition 187, a very draconian anti-Latino proposition that passed. In the 1996 election, there was a new mobilization of Latino voters, naturalization rates went through the ceiling. This happened to coincide with when people became eligible for naturalization after the 1986 um, amnesty under the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. Um, there was a, an increased registration of Latino voters at that time. And I would argue that the reason California, among the reasons California, maybe the most important reason California is such a democratic state now, is because Pete Wilson did more to naturalize, register, and mobilize Latino voters than any civil rights organization in California had ever dreamed of doing. And they were reacting, as I said, reacting directly to Pete Wilson. Trump, as the article suggests, could have that effect or any Republican candidate who makes an anti-Latino immigrant position such a central focus of his campaign. It's important to remember that John McCain in 2008 and uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 also took very strong anti-undocumented immigrant stands, but that wasn't their first issue and their most important issue, and how they tried to distinguish themselves primarily in the minds of the voter. Donald Trump, so far, seems to have this as very much front and center in, in his um, 
uh, victory speech last night after the recent primary, he mentioned among the things that he knew he was going to do, he mentioned again that there was a need to secure the borders, that Mexican immigrants needed to be stopped, that there was a need to deport 11 million people, most of them Latino, but many of them not, at least 65, 60, 65 percent are Latino. So he could have that impact if he makes this a front and center part of his campaign. We're talking to Luis Fraga, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also the Arthur Foundation Endowed Professor of Transformative Latino Leadership. His research and teaching focuses on Latino politics, voting rights, immigration, and the politics of race and ethnicity. For Latinos, is, it, uh, is the issue in, in, in this coming election and politics right now, is it always about immigration? Well, it's, it's very interesting that one way of understanding immigration in Latino communities is that immigration is a gateway issue. That is, when you ask Latinos, and we did a study in 2006 that showed this very definitively, what do you, what do you think is the most important issue facing the country? Latinos tend to respond like most Americans would respond. Sometimes it's national security, sometimes it's the economy. Um, but when you ask Latinos, what do you think is the most important issue facing Latino communities today? The number one issue that consistently comes up is immigration, closely followed by education. So it depends on what the Latino is thinking of. Are they thinking about their, themselves and their community, or are they thinking about the country as a whole? So immigration is a very important issue. It's not the only issue that Latinos are interested in, but it's a very, very important issue. So when candidates make that a central issue, then Latinos tend to have a strong reaction with regards to either support for someone who's taking a strong position that they favor, or a negative view of the candidate, depending upon his or her position. Well, let's talk about the Democrats um, and Hillary and uh, Bernie and where Latinos stand there. It seems like there has been this growing, younger Latino support for Bernie Sanders. That's part of the general youth support that he's received. And Latino youth, younger Latino voters, are following a similar pattern to voters overall. Um, I think he inspires a lot of people uh, to take action in a way that uh, they find um, challenging and aspirational. And I think Latinos are responding to it. In the Texas primary, the Texas Democratic primary, um, Hillary Clinton received the support of about 65%, according to the exit polls of Latino voters. Bernie Sanders received the support of about 35% or so. Um, Hillary Clinton had a lot of endorsements from Latino elected officials, and her name, of course, is much more well-known. Um, I do know that Bernie Sanders has organizers in Texas. I would assume he has organizers in other states with large Latino populations. So it'll be very interesting to see how that works out. Um, I would expect for Hillary Clinton to continue to do better with Latino voters than Bernie Sanders will. Um, but him getting a third of the vote in Texas is, I think, very telling. What that is telling me is that Latinos are comfortable with him, too. And if he were to become the candidate, there's every reason to think that Latino Democrats would support him just as strongly as they did before. It's also important to remember that in 2008, Latino voters, by about a 60 percent margin, supported Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama. 
60-65%. Many people at that time said that Latinos would not support an African-American if, if Barack Obama became the candidate. And all of the evidence suggests that those predictions were absolutely wrong. And Latinos voted uh, for Barack Obama at higher levels than they had voted for other recent Democratic candidates. And I would expect them to do the same for Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton, let's say if she were to become the nominee, and there's been some talk about uh, Julian Castro, who is uh, uh, in the administration, uh, and uh, whether, you know, he's one of the My twins. My former student. Yeah, your former student. So, yeah, okay, talk about that. <laughs> Did you see this coming? <laughs> well, you know uh, both of them. I, in, yes, in they, Julian and his other, and yeah, his brother. I was, I was their advisor in the Department of Political Science, and they wrote their undergraduate theses with me, and they've been very gracious in allowing me to remain part of their amazing careers right. of public service um, throughout. Um, yes, there is talk. Um, it's been public that uh, he is on a list of individuals to be considered. Um, one way of thinking a vice presidential candidate, voters vote for the presidential candidate. They won't vote for a vice presidential candidate. But, but will a vice presidential candidate perhaps help carry certain states? Well, which states might be in play that would be significant for any Democrat who's running? Let's take Hillary Clinton, since she's the one who's mentioned Julian Castro as a possibility. Well, the states where Julian might make a difference are three states, in my view. Nevada, Colorado, and New Mexico. States in the Southwest, states with largely Mexican, um, the Latino population there is largely of Mexican origin, as, as, Julian, as Julian is. Um, those three states only become important if the Democrats are able to win in Ohio and the Democrats are able to win in Florida. Um, or if they win only Ohio or Florida, then these states become important marginal states. Now, if Hillary Clinton wants to, or Bernie Sanders, whoever the Democratic nominee is, wants to enhance their competitiveness in Ohio, and say Ohio is a more critical state, then a candidate like Julian Castro doesn't become that important. So all of the analysis that's happening now regarding how well, for example, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are doing with white ethnic voters and white ethnic male voters, these are the Democrats, Democratic partisans, right, um, become important in trying to predict the outcome in states like Ohio and states like Pennsylvania. If the Democratic candidate is doing reasonably well there, and say the Republicans take Florida, then these three states become extremely important in helping the Democrat win. And a candidacy like that of Julian Castro might be extremely strategically important in being considered. Um, it, I don't see right now that his candidacy might, might be useful in helping a Democrat win in Florida. The uh, Florida um, Latino community is more diverse it's Cuban, it's Puerto Rican. The largest growth in the Latino electorate in Florida recently has been of middle-class professional Puerto Ricans who are leaving the island because of the economic dislocation there. How they will vote is, is harder to predict. Um, one may know that um, Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico vote at 80 to 90 percent, uh, very high participation rates, but when they move to the United States, they tend to have relatively low voter participation rates. So it's not sure. It's, we're not sure exactly how they will, how they will play out. Um, so it would be very interesting to see uh, what happens in that state. So someone like Julian will be helpful depending upon the competitive scenario in other very important swing states.
talking to uh, Dr. Luis Fraga, a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he uh, focuses on the politics, Latino politics, uh, and also immigration and other issues. Uh, what do you make of this election? I mean, it, it, this has been, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're in the midst of it. It's uh, been heating up. Uh, I think no one expected uh, Donald Trump to do as well as he has been doing, but yet uh, he looks like looks like he's going to get the nomination. He's got a really good chance of doing it. Uh, what do you make of what's happened here? Well, I think one way of interpreting part of what has happened is that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have tapped into a very significant level of dissatisfaction among segments of the American public with the status quo. Whether that status quo is understood as traditional Republican leadership or the status quo is understood as traditional Democratic leadership. I think, and, and they're tapping into different segments of the American populace, right? In the case of Trump, it's largely um, working class, uh, predominantly white. Um, voters, although not exclusively so, but largely so far. It's a very important base of his support. In the case of Bernie Sanders, it's younger folks and more liberal folks. Um, they each happen to be running against candidates who have much more establishment credentials. Ted Cruz is a little harder to understand, but Marco Rubio and John Kasich yeah. you can understand in that way, particularly Marco Rubio. So voters are making real choices. They know what they're getting or what they think they'll get in casting their votes, and no one anticipated that this was the case. Why are people looking for something new? I think there's dissatisfaction with the continued difficulty of the Congress to get its work done, the obstructionism that we see there. I think there's continuing insecurity with the uh, growing uh, globalization of investment and in our economy, uh, continuing vulnerability that many working class people feel generally. And I think younger voters are looking for someone who has hope. It sounds like an Obama campaign commercial. It does, commercial, sort of, but that's doesn't it? They're looking for, for someone who has a vision for the future. And so, so they're, they're tapping into dissatisfaction similarly. But for Donald Trump, I think he's tapping into not the future, but a fictionalized past. And Bernie Sanders is tapping into a fictionalized hopeful future about what it is that may happen. I say fictionalized because we don't know whether the country would accept the sorts of in the magnitude of changes that he's recommending. Um, but clearly, the status quo is not acceptable to sizable segments of the American public. Now, as a practicing political scientist who's been doing this for 32 years, and for all of my colleagues, I have to say, none of us predicted this. <laughs> none of us saw this. But very clearly, the American public is saying, segments of the American public are saying, we want something different. The anger and ugliness mm -hmm. on the Republican side, disturbing. There is a way of understanding parts of the vitriol, especially the vitriol related to race and ethnicity and immigration, as a reaction to the unquestioned demographic transformations that are happening in the country overall. All of our demographic projections show, and of course, good demographer only predicts out maybe 10 years, but if you give yourself the space to predict out and project out into the future, um, it's already the case, for example, that of the under 18 population in the United States, only 52% is white. 
although depending on the over 18 population, it's more in the neighborhood of 65%, or, or maybe 65 to 70% um, who are Caucasian, European, American, white. So, so the shifts that we speculate about are already being experienced in the country. California, within 15 years, will, is, in 2000, it was the first, it was, one, it was the largest majority minority state. In 2030, it could be a Latino majority state, right? And you know, the three states now are majority minority, Hawaii, um, California, and um, New Mexico. Uh, more states, as many as 22 by the next 30 years, are likely to be majority minority states. Those transformations are occurring. Some people see that as fundamentally threatening to American identity, to American culture, to American jobs. And it's very important to understand this as an underlying characterization, an underlying understanding that might better explain questions raised regarding legality and questions raised regarding going through the process for immigration and so forth. And that's very troubling because the future is a future of our country. The future of our country is one where demography will shift. What these categories will mean 20, 30 years from now, it's hard to tell. But we know what they've meant for the last 150 years and it's unlikely to think that they're going to shift easily over the next 20 or 30 years. So I think these categories will still be very relevant for how we understand ourselves as a people. The challenge here is whether we embrace that difference as something that makes us strong or whether we see that difference as threatening to fundamental tenets of the American character and American values. What do you see? Trump versus uh, Clinton? Yes, right now, that's the safe money, I would say. Uh, but we'll know a lot more after the next set of uh, primaries, uh, when Ohio votes and Florida votes. I think those two states, Ohio, Florida, and you might also include Illinois, the next states, the next big states that are going to have primaries. When we see what the level of support is for each of the candidates from those states, I think we'll be in a better position. I'm a social scientist. More data is always better than less data, right? I think we'll be in a better position to see who the final candidates may be. Should either uh, Trump or uh, Clinton not do as well as expected in those states, then um, states like Florida, uh, states like even uh, toward the end of the election cycle, states like California become more important in determining who the final uh, candidates will be for each party. If Trump is the nominee for the Republicans, what do you see it doing to the Republican Party? Well, I think it's hard, it's hard to predict, <laughs> but I think the Republican Party will rally behind him. I think some folks will not do it enthusiastically, but I think they would decide that any Republican, even Donald Trump, would be better than a Democrat in the White House. Whether that is enough to help Donald Trump overcome the negative assessments that have been made is very unclear to me. But I don't expect the Republican Party to split or to fracture if Trump is the nominee. The only scenario that I see where the Republican Party might have some challenges in that regard is if Trump goes in as clearly the leader of delegates, although not getting a majority, and after the first ballot, he's no longer considered. 
um, then I think many of his supporters will feel that the election was stolen from them, or at least the nomination, I should say, was stolen from them, and they would react negatively, maybe. But I don't see where they'll go. If they run a third-party candidate, the Democrat wins. Are they going to turn to be Democrats? No. So they're, in a sense, boxed in to whoever the Republican nominee is, because that Republican nominee will be closer to their views, maybe not ideal, but closer to her views, to their views than any of the opposing candidates might be. Before we close here, um, you used to be at the University of Washington before you went off to become a member of the Fighting Irish in Notre Dame. Um, and you were also um, involved uh, with the ACLU's efforts uh, to bring a federal lawsuit or challenge federally and in, in federal court, uh, the Yakima City Council elections, which eventually were, uh, because of a federal ruling, they established a district election system and three Latinas made history by getting elected there. What does that mean for this state, and particularly central and eastern Washington? If the ruling stands, and the appeals court or the uh, Supreme Court does not reverse it in some way, and Still that's there. not clear, but if it stands, it's important to see that the transformation that occurred in Yakima could occur in other communities in central Washington. Among the transformations is, of course, the election of three Latinas. It's important to understand that only two of them, one of them came from a majority Latino district, another from a Latino influence district, and the third from a district that didn't have a very sizable number of Latinos in it at all. What's more important to understand is that there were more candidates running for office office of, of who were white and more who were running like than ever before in Yakima. For Latino voters, there was more registration than ever before. Um, the change to single-member districts and the chance to cast a meaningful vote that might lead to all segments of the population um, having a chance to elect their first choice candidates to public office was good for democracy. Participation was up for Latino communities. The number of candidates running was up for everybody. It's a much more diverse city council. Um, this is good, a good indicator, I think, of what the future of that part of the state might be. Big challenges still remain regarding how council members get along and what the voting coalitions are. But at least now, different communities have a chance to sit at the table and be part of the game. Now it's about who you can convince to join you in your legislative uh, positions for conservatives, for liberals, for Democrats, for Republicans, for whites, for Latinos. That's what a good democracy does. It allows for different communities to be represented, and then they battle it out. And you accept the decision that the majority makes. So there are no guarantees in a system like this that anyone will win, but at least you're guaranteed that you have a chance of being a player. It was a privilege to work on that case. I was one of the expert witnesses. Um, and that's a community that elected three Latinas ever in the history, first Latinos ever in history. There are three women. There are three young women, younger women. Um, that's a sign of, of the future of that part of the state. And it's a very hopeful sign for the future of our country. Luis Fraga, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also the Arthur Foundation Endowed Professor of Transformative Latino Leadership. Thank you for your time, and uh, we'll talk more next time. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be here with you again, Enrique.